John Freeman is president of the National Book Critics Circle, headquartered in New York? Yes. Well, we that's have, because you're there. That's because I'm here, but <laughs> basically we, all of our awards happen here, all of our deliberations historically happen here, and I would say, I think about seven of our board members, and we have 24 are here, then we have roughly 700 members, and they're scattered everywhere. There's a few actually in uh, Canada. One in Lebanon now. We might have to consider a name change because our award is also open to books written in uh, other languages, translated into English, so long as they're published within the calendar year that we're judging. Okay. We've had WGZ Vault once uh, won our award. Oh, did he? Yeah, yes. he won for Austerlitz. Yes, uh, magnificent book. It's incredible, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It's just a cathedral. Yeah. It's beautiful. Perhaps you could then tell me about uh, the organization, purpose. Uh, what some of the awards are about, and then we can go on to the reason that I'm interviewing you, uh, and that is the uh, campaign to save or resurrect literary supplements in newspapers all across the United States. Yeah, right now we kind of have those paddles out, kind of clear. We're trying to get newspapers aware that, that book reviews are not just uh, an add-on section, but rather part of delivering the news. You know, that's that's the way our culture thinks about knowledge in some ways. But back to your question, we're based in New York and we've been uh, giving out the National Book Critics Circle Awards since 1974. And the goal of the organization originally was to, to both highlight the best books of the year. We had an award in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry at that time, but also to highlight great work in criticism. So very early on, we set up an award called the Nona Balakian Award, which is named after a former Daily Book Review editor of the New York Times. What's, what's that person's name again? Nona Balakian. That's given out to a working critic uh, who is a member of our organization. And over the years, it's been everyone from Thomas Mallon to actually Daniel Mendelssohn, who won the award for autobiography memoir last year. They're praised for their actual criticism? Yes. We have... Now we have six book categories. It's grown over the years. We have fiction, nonfiction, biography, uh, criticism, poetry, and autobiography memoir. But we also have these other uh, awards, the Balakian Award, which is given to a critic for their work in the book review form. And, and, and that would be reviews within books, or just a review? They could win for one for a series of... They submit um, up to five reviews, and I think there's a word count limit, um, which is probably around 5,000 words. So it's really kind of privileges either someone who writes a really incredible long piece and a series of shorter pieces, or people who do the kind of reviewing that shows up in newspapers. And that's what Nona Blakin was um, dedicated to, sort of daily newspaper journalism, and book reviews that spoke to a lot of people. And we also have an award for lifetime achievement, which has gone to Albert Murray and Lawrence from Getty, uh, Bill Henderson, and runs the Pushcart Press out in Long Island. And that's basically to a, con a lifetime contribution to arts and letters. So that doesn't have to do necessarily with book reviews. It could be someone who just encourages book culture literacy as, or has written incredible books over their career. And where do you get your funding from? We don't. We have no funding right now. I mean, it, it all comes from the uh, membership fees, which are pretty nominal. It's, I think it's $40 or $45. How big is the membership? And it's, who, who it's about 700 And so that, you know, you can do the math. It brings in, you know, a little over $25,000 a year if everyone is a full member because there are non-voting memberships for people who just 
just want to be involved without voting. Um, but we've just recently, a year ago, got our 5013C status, so we're a nonprofit. Everyone who's on our board, who's elected by the members, is a volunteer. They don't get paid. Um, all they really get out of it is a chance to get in a room and argue with each other four times a year and have an input to this prize. Yeah, how does that work? Is there a, a, a judging panel, I assume? That's there are. The, the, or is it a vote, a vote among the membership? There's two, there's two things. The, the membership votes first. Throughout the year, the, the NBCC board, which is the judges, meet three different times, and we create an uh, email to serve. So people break up into committees of eight or more, so fiction, nonfiction, all those, those groups, and they start communicating by email. Um, and then around December, we get together for one last meeting, which um, usually involves breaking the list down to about 10, a long list, which we haven't yet published. So we thought about putting that online like the way the Booker does. But there's the worry that if you put you know, too many short lists, eventually the, the winner is announced and it kind of just gets yeah. dissolved into the ether of all this prize talk. So at that point, we, we narrow our, um, our, our sort of long lists of books that we, we're we are considering for the prize down to 10. Um, and then in January, we meet for one meeting and narrow it to shortlist. But before we actually do the vote to get it to a shortlist, we tally member votes. If 20% uh, of the membership, which is voting, votes for a single book, that book becomes automatically a finalist. So if they could pull something that we're not even considering and just put it on the list if, if there's 20% more voting for it. So last year, Michael Pollan's book, uh, Domino's Dilemma, made it on that way. And there was one other book, um, which escapes my memory now, which made it on that way. So when we got to voting, there was only four books to choose out of the 10 or 12 that we had on our long lists. And the thing that makes this prize prized by its winners would be that it's selected from their peers? Well, actually, it, it's selected by critics and working critics. It's sort of twice distilled from a group of people whose job it is or whose passion it is, or both, to read a lot of books and to sort of talk about the ones that they feel like are real, real achievements in the form. So the National Book Award is slightly different in that it's judged by peers. It's a novelist, judge novelists, and poets judge poets. And um, the Pulitzer is judged by journalists or, or, or sometimes uh, other people within the field. Um, Penn Faulkner is, is judged by writers. So other than the Southern Book Critics Circle, um, which is similar to us but slightly smaller, we're the only ones to do that. And <laughs> to date, we haven't given out any money either. So yeah, basically, yeah. It's, just, uh, it's just a gold star. Maybe it's because you don't have the money to market the award in the way that the Booker and the National Book uh, Awards mm -hmm. do, but it's not perhaps quite as high profile, but I would think that in terms of prestige, it would be right up there. I hope so. There's a book written called The Economy of Prestige, which is all about literary prizes. And in some ways, in this sort of ultra-crowded prize marketplace, that is a good thing to have because... It's a way that people make a decision on whether to buy books. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the sales will go up uh, two or threefold if, if a book wins a major prize. And, of course, the publishers love it because they can splatter it all over the covers. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I don't think we're, we're as separated from sort of commercial impulse as, as some critics believe. I mean, I think the purpose of giving a prize is, is both to award the achievement but also to, to, to pick up a mouthpiece and say to the public, you got to read this. It's really good. Yeah, it's, it'll benefit everyone to yeah, be reading it yeah. because it's great. And the ideas literature. get out there, and 
hopefully people are inspired and they have a sort of extra moment of beauty in their life. Yes, yes. As opposed to hatred and... Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of can't in the world, so it's, uh, I think literature is the ultimate antidote to that. Yeah, yeah. Even literature, which is, which is angry. If we had as many uh, bookshops as gun shops in America, we'd be in good shape. Now, let's get to the uh, controversy or the concern that uh, you're raising by, by launching this, this campaign. Could you tell us a, a bit about it and the reasons why you're doing it? Well, this, these changes in the way that we read the news have been happening for a long time, and book sections have been part of that change dating back you know, at least 10 years as the Boston Globe folded their book section into the ideas section. Uh, the San Francisco Chronicle, I don't know how many years back, might have been five, cut their book section. There's a standalone, they made it, they put it together with another, another section, and the public complained. They were angry. They said, we want to have big book coverage. We want to have book reviews. We want to have interviews. We want to have criticism. And the thing about it now is newspapers have had serious cutbacks in all, all parts of what they do. So they're closing foreign bureaus, and they're, they're shutting down their arts coverage in general. Uh, they're cutting back on classical music and architecture. So book reviews is part of that. Which is sort of ironic because, in a way, the only reason to turn to a newspaper these days is for the more considered pieces because exactly. you can go online for all of this news feeds. Right. That are There's been at such you. a huge shift in how fast the news, the news works that the newspaper has become kind of a considered form. So personally, and I think professionally, my, the organization feels like this should be a no-brainer. This is what you can offer and, and encourage the people who are subscribing now to continue to subscribe because those are the people who want that. The people who read the news in that form are probably going to read that kind of coverage. So the thing that really jump-started our campaign was uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution eliminated its book editor in a kind of cutback move that affected lots of different departments of the paper. And that is, by some accounts, the third most literate city in the country. And so if, if that kind of city could have that kind of cutback, we thought this could happen everywhere and we could wind up with a situation where there's the AP, there's the New York Times, the Washington Post, and one or two other newspapers which have a chain, and that would be it. It would be sort of a clear channeling of critical dialogue. So the goal of, the, of our campaign was, one, to beat back the change in Atlanta, which I'm not sure is going to happen, but it, we've opened a dialogue there. But two, to just raise awareness that this is happening, because companies aren't democracies. And, and so unless people raise a stink, they're going to go ahead with changes based on financial impulses, which might be wrong, and it, and it will be a lot harder to bring sections back if they go away in a, in a sort of wholesale fashion. Yeah, I guess what you're saying then is that, that in the short term, it may not be financially viable for them to have these extra book sections, and yet maybe in the longer term or medium term, it probably would be. I think so. I think the idea that newspapers require literacy to exist and book reviews encourage and foster literacy. And there are lots of ways that, that those... No, I don't know about that. I mean, you either have a literate population or you don't, going through the school system. Right, well, it goes... You're right, it goes much further back into the schools where that's the foundation of literacy, in, in, at least in American society, is do you go to school and you learn to read. But not, I'm not talking so much about literacy as in can you read a sentence, as in... Just the enjoyment of reading. Literacy. Yeah. Mm. News in order to read a newspaper and, and care about it, you have to kind of agree with the idea that you get knowledge from the written word. And book review sections are all about that, are sort of combing 
what scholars and novelists and poets and historians are doing, and then highlighting it as a way to sort of both distill it and then also judge it. Problem is, though, the advertisers don't seem to be supporting those sections, and yeah. that's if the sports section could never pay for itself uh, if it had to. And the sports section sure. is, is it's not under the same kind of pressure to, to go and ask, say, if it's in Sacramento, the Sacramento Kings, to run ads in their section. They that's because Americans are much more passionate about sports than anything it works, else. It works in all other sections. I mean, the op-ed section never works for itself. It never pays for itself. And if, if you sort of broke down newspapers and said, tried to have each section individually account for itself, you know, maybe the movie section would, would do well because, you know, the movies is a mass experience, so the books aren't now. But well, and also, again, there's lots of advertising. There's lots of advertising, but the publishers don't have the advertising budgets to do it because ad space in newspapers is expensive. Mm-hmm. And a lot of their ad revenue, uh, ad dollars now is going into in co-ops and sliding books into places in the stores where you can sort of shove a book in front of somebody as they walk by. Yeah, more point of purchase than... And my, my worry with that is, okay, great, maybe you can get books in front of people, but is book culture really just about buying books? You know, the, the book review section, I've heard this argument made, and I kind of agree with it. It shouldn't necessarily be about selling books. They're about thinking about what's in the books and bringing book culture to people who people may, may not even buy the books. You yeah. know, it's sort of a vibration that comes off of publishing. For me, anyway, I, I, you know, it's, it's my favorite section of the, the newspaper, and always is. I look forward mm-hmm. to it on the weekends. But, but again, I guess maybe you and me, and we're just not, we're unusual. I don't know. I, I mean, know. The, the newspapers are clearly in touch with their audiences more so than we are. I think so, but I also think that newspapers are run more and more now by um, people with MBAs rather than journalism degrees, or not even that. You, you don't find a, a, a would-be novelist as a publisher of a, of a newspaper as much as you used to. I forget, the, I think his name was Henry Jackson, the guy in the San Francisco Chronicle, who was, he was a cultural critic and a publisher. You don't have that, and I, I think this gets to a much bigger trend in the news, which when you start talking about news as content, sort of this disembodied sort yeah. of element. Pro- a product. A product, and that gets to such a huge issue of, of how news is presented and, and produced and sold in the United States and how even at the top levels in broadcast news it's become a kind of entertainment and it's supposed to be a revenue uh, generator. Yeah. And when you start thinking of it that way, then it, it becomes more of a business decision to cut back on sort of global overseas reporting and take someone out of your Beirut or... Know, Tel Aviv Bureau, and you just sort of string that through the BBC, and it, it, it creates a, a market, but it doesn't create a market of ideas. So what's, what exactly is the campaign doing? Like, What's your rationale behind it, and what do you hope to get from it? Well, the, the first thing the campaign did was it created a petition to send to the Atlanta Journal, um, which at this point has about 6,000 signatures online and a couple other... Uh, thousand that were generated there. And where where can people go to sign that by? Um, you probably have to just Google uh, Atlanta and petition okay. and you'll definitely find it. And we're going to present that to the, the editors of the paper. It wasn't so much to create an example out of Atlanta but to sort of speak back to one single newspaper and say, hey your community wants this section and your community wants paper to invest in books and sort of think of it as a, a primary node of culture in, it, in, that, in that community and if a newspaper thinks of itself as part of the community, that should be important. But the larger can, uh, goal of the campaign is to raise awareness to this trend and also get people talking about criticism, get people talking about what it does and what it means to them 
through that and hopefully generate some ideas about, okay, if the newspaper model is changing, which it definitely is, how can we encourage and even expand the amount of time we spend thinking in a serious, entertaining, meditative fashion about books? And there are lots of ways to do that. It's not, and it's not just print-based. But in order to get that conversation really going and have it mean something, is you have to put the pressure on the owners of the newspapers where we have this moment now, I think, to say, this, this should be something you think about going forward when you move to more web-based publishing. But is there a way to uh, talk to them in their language about the fact that spending time and money in this area isn't a, wa- a waste of money for you and it's not going to hurt your revenue? Absolutely. Uh, and that's what we're, we've been trying to do. We've had op-eds posted. Michael Connolly wrote an op-ed for the LA Times, which basically said just exactly what you just said, which is that you know investing in this will be good for your business future. We're not trying to create a dialogue, which is us using only sort of cultural uh, terms and the newspaper only using monetary terms. I think we're actually on the same page as what would be good for the newspaper would culturally would also be good for it financially. And again, the core argument would be that newspaper readers of the future aren't necessarily going to go to a newspaper for the newswire kind of reporting of facts. They're going to go to newspapers more for greater background information Mm -hmm. on on all sorts of things. Absolutely, and I I think one thing that newspapers do, not universally well, but they can do well, is, is foster talent. You know, a lot of incredible novelists started out writing for newspapers or reviewing for newspapers. Hemingway. the case of Kansas City Star. So I think in an environment where there's lots and lots of content and there's, there is a finite amount of talent in the world, I think what newspapers can do is become beacons for good writing. You know, if, if you in an environment that's got lots of messy writing, which is, is, is the web, I mean, there's lots of good writing, but there's lots of messy writing. Yeah. If you create a... a a website and a product, I hate to use that word, yeah, if you yeah. have a product which has really good writing, it will draw people to it because the better you write, the better you communicate and the, and the more entertaining you can be. And I think if newspapers think about that, then they can they can really actually draw people to them. You, you handed out a, a new supplement, literary supplement, at the function that we were at. Oh, what, I, what I did was I just asked for all the editors that I could in touch with um, to send me the book sections. The downside of this campaign is, you know, once people collectively start to bemoan something, it, it, you can sound like it's a, a wine fest. And it, as, as much as there is bad news, there's good news about what some sections are doing and managing to do and doing well and, and not losing money at. And so I wanted to bring in all the sections around the country to sort of get them out of here to, to people who are booksellers and journalist like yourself. It seems to me it, it is a financial decision. There's yeah. no question of that. Absolutely. So, the, you know, the solution is to try and come up with some answer that uh, well, generates revenue for, for greater coverage of books. Yeah, and, there are a couple answers. I mean, the, for example, the Los Angeles Times Festival of the Book makes money for the paper. And I don't think you can have a big, powerful festival like that without having a, a well-edited well-read book section. They ha- hold the festival and they, t- they it, generate revenue from that by what? By charging admission by and charging things like that? By charging admission and sort of charging booth presenters. I, I don't know exactly. Oh, they sell, sell booths and stuff? Yeah. I, it, but I do know it makes money, and but that money isn't funneled back into... To, to not the, directly. No. Not directly into the book section. 
So there's a there's a specious argument here in that you say, oh, not you personally, but the argument is, oh, book sections don't pay for themselves. But some papers which do have book festivals don't fund, fund the money that they, they, they generate back into the section. So that's not really a, a fair trade. I think papers around the country that would be great both for their own branding and for their relationship with the community to have localized book festivals. And there are in lots of places like St. Petersburg, Seattle, L.A., obviously. But, um, for some reason, the New York area hasn't quite figured out what its festival is, although the, the Penn Festival is becoming kind of the literary festival of the year here. Uh, I think newspapers would be really wise to sort of work with things like the National Endowment of the Arts and local art uh, artists' communities to, uh, to put on book festivals because they're really popular and lots of people come out for them. There's a sort of, I think, really powerful urge to engage with books and, and people who want, care about books. So what you what are you doing with that campaign? The campaign, though, like sp- very specifically, what you're you're simply encouraging people to sign petitions. But what what more are you doing? Well, tomorrow Sunday morning there is a panel about this exact issue, and the Dallas Morning News, which had cutbacks, sent their editor up here to be on this panel. Uh, the, the Atlanta Journal has sent the features editor, who's going to oversee what their book section becomes, and it's not quite clear what that's going to be is going to be here, as well as several other editors. So part of what we're doing specifically is trying to bring newspaper editors from these papers where there are changes into a conversation and actually start exchanging ideas. And so as, a, as an organization, we, the only thing we can really do is create an environment in which it's bad PR to cut back your book section. And then secondly, to, to sort of invite them into a debate where, in a dialogue where we can come up with ideas for sections in the future. In Atlanta, we had an actual protest in front of the office of the newspaper, which, which I think actually got us an audience with the paper. And so it, it feels like a you know, sharp elbows, noisy way to get, get attention, but it's, it's kind of the way you have to, because a company like the Cox, which owns the AJC, which isn't publicly traded, they can make their own decisions. You know, but I, I don't think uh, all those deci- decisions would ne- necessarily be good for the paper. Finally, why are you doing this personally? I believe in newspapers. I believe in sort of the democratic faculty that they serve in a a society and providing information to people, reporting on the powerful to the less powerful, and trading news and and sort of bringing um, cultural debates that happen far away to your front doorstep. And the Internet's great for that now and that you can go on the line, search, and find incredible resources. It's like being hooked up to the biggest library in the world. world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing. It's, it's amazing, but it's there is a lack of serendipity in the internet that is, exists in newspapers, which I sort of believe in. I, I started carrying a newspaper when I was eight or nine, and until I was nineteen in Sacramento, where I was growing up, and delivered the paper, and every day sort of got my hands inky. And so I'm, I'm in. Did, did you actually read it or not? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I, I remember the you know the San Francisco earthquake and sort of. Not in, not in 1905, when would that yeah, be? 19... Yeah. No, that was my grandfather's appearance. <laughs> yeah, okay. But, you know, getting up and coming to the paper for the news, and I know that's changed, but I do have a, a, a sentimental affection, but also just a philosophical belief in, in, the, in the value of what they provide society. And I, I believe that we're moving into a world where we're incredibly, incredibly more niched, and that's the way that, that corporations market how they sort of hyper-niche something. And that might be good for us in terms of um, getting what we want, you know, and, and sort of 
individualizing, as they say, but I, I, I don't think that's as good for us as a society. I think what's good for a society is to have as many different people under the same group. And, you know, the Internet does that, but the, there are some barriers to entry which a 25-cent newspaper doesn't have. John Freeman, thank you very much for uh, shining a light on what's going on with literary supplements uh, in newspapers throughout the United States. Do you have a website that people can visit to get a bit more information? We've got two. Our website is bookcritics.org, which will tell you all you need to know about the National Book Critics Circle. And we also have a blog called Critical Mass, which has hosted a lot of the commentary that has been generated at this campaign, sort of original essays by Richard Powers and Humor pieces by George Saunders. We've done some interviews with Nadine Gordimer, Howard Zinn. We've had some, we've had some commentary from bloggers like Mark Sarvis. Um, so we've tried to have a big debate on our blog about this, which is, I think, an in- interesting sign that new technology and old technology will have to come together to be the solution to this problem. And the website, uh, the blog address is bookcriticcircle.blogspot.com. Thanks very much for your time. Yeah, thanks for meeting you.